I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. And welcome to part two of our podcast for this month, our special on Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, Beyond the Feud. So Betty Davis and Joan Crawford are suddenly, amazingly, cool again. I know, it's great, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Thanks to the Ryan Murphy series Feud starring Susan Sarandon and Jessica Lange, these studio-era cinema titans are once more in the spotlight, or at least their legendary rivalry is. And that's a great thing, right? Yeah. The more eyes on Davis and Crawford, the more people adding some golden-era Hollywood to their diet, the better, I think. So with that in mind, we decided to spend some time with these two great actresses, talking about where they came from, their incredible careers, and what their body of work means today. The only thing we're not really going to go super deep on is the feud itself. We'll cover it, of course, but, but I think our main focus this month is going to be on shining a spotlight on Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, their lives and careers beyond the feud. That's right. Well, Betty Davis especially has been a favourite of ours for quite a while. Yep. So it's been great to be able to delve into both of these uh, legendary actresses. And the first we'll touch on is... Joan Crawford, her early years. Uh, she was born in Texas as Lucille Lasseur, uh, which sounds like you'd reverse those names if you're trying to get a stage name. Right. You know what I mean? Like you think, oh, my name's Joan Crawford. I'm going I'm to call myself Lus- Lucille Lasseur. Lasseur, yeah. That's a much better um, name. And the date of birth is disputed, but anywhere between 1904 and 1906, yes. apparently. Yeah. She had a rough childhood. Uh, her biological father abandoned the family, and Crawford, from a young age, was abused by her stepfather. Uh, she had a troubled academic record. She left Texas and eventually joined a traveling dancing review in 1924. Uh, but things didn't take off immediately, and Crawford was nearly destitute, returning home a little defeated. As luck would have it, on Christmas Eve 1924, MGM offered her a contract, something along the lines of $75 a month. Um, and by New Year's Day 1925, she arrived in Hollywood. Crawford's debut year was as a bit part actor. She appeared in 13 films in one year. Crawford's first three years were working exclusively in silent films. These were simple romantic dramas. Of note were 1926's Tramp, 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 uh, because she was directed by Frank Capra. Mm-hmm. 1927 would prove to be an important year for Crawford. Her first top billing occurred in The Taxi Driver, which, which isn't uh, the original De Niro film. It, it is not? No, no. <laughs> I can imagine, though. Imagine <laughs> that. Just Crawford just... Doing doing the thing in the cinema where she puts her you know like oh, the, the two fingers over her eyes and it's just pointing towards the screen. I can imagine her doing that. Yeah, yeah, perhaps becoming obsessed with a young Charlie Chaplin. <laughs> but uh, the taxi driver instead is where she plays a title character, a struggling actress meeting potential suitors as she drives them around in a taxi. Hmm. Um, but the first film of note that Crawford did for me anyway was 1927's The Unknown. It was produced by Irving Thalberg, starred Lon Chaney and was directed by Todd Browning, the director of the cult favourite Freaks. The Unknown visits similar ground as Cheney stars in, as an armless circus carny who throws knives with his feet. But it is revealed that he is faking his amputation. He falls for the co-star in his knife-wielding act, Joan Crawford, and he begins a murderous campaign to keep his secret and also you know, to keep his love of Crawford. Yeah. The film was dismissed on release, but with Browning's increasing standing in cult cinema and Burt Lancaster, of all people, championing Cheney's performance, the film had a resurgence in later years. But watching it, uh, you can see how close talkies were to taking over because dialogue title cards appear like every 10 seconds in it. Yeah. 
the purely visual storytelling art of cinema was already well on its way to disappearing by this time. And finally, in the same year, Crawford had her first bona fide hit with Spring Fever, a light romantic drama about golf and love. She followed this the next year with two films that announced her as a star of the silver screen. Across to Singapore, a swashbuckling adventure with Roman Navarro, who was like the Latin lover answer to Rudolph Valentino. Yep. The second film was Our Dancing Daughters, a morality tale about lost youth, which won Academy Awards, but also got Crawford her first serious notices as an actress. In 1929, the talkies finally consumed Crawford, and she released Untamed. The verdict was favourable for Crawford. Her voice was always clear and strong, and she did a song and dance number, which met with approval. This is not to be sniffed at, considering many other actors were being judged by their, for their voice and its impact on their performances, yep. and it ruined some. But Crawford transitioned from silent to talkies with seeming ease. The other punishing aspect of this is that script writing dialogue for actors was also in its infancy too. So Crawford and his stable mates uh, weren't really handed too much help from the writers. Yeah. Uh, around this time, MGM began to cultivate Crawford as a glamorous star to rival Garbo. The number of films she was given were less, but they were more invested in the characters, and she was beginning to be the outright lead in the films she started rather than the co-star. And the early 30s were about to be a very good time for the determined actress. There's a, a great story Betty Davis tells about being 23 years old, lying on a couch at Universal Studios, a camera fixed on her as a parade of young male stars come into frame to make movie love to her, wooing her as they said lines like, I adore you, I worship you. Or, you gorgeous, divine darling. <laughs> it was all a test to see if anyone could squeak some chemistry out of the woman studio head Carl Emley once described as having as much sex appeal as Slim Somerville. And um, if you haven't seen Slim Somerville, uh, he's someone who IMDb helpfully describes as rustic looking. He's <laughs> like a cowboy star who would be about fourth or fifth billing. Maybe it's a comical sidekick, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and it's perplexing to me, having watched Davis and Jezebel, particularly, or Dark Victory, that her beauty should have been endowed, or much less an issue been put up against her great talent. But breaking into film did not come easy for Betty Davis. She'd fallen in love with the idea of the stage when she saw Peg Entwistle perform a play in 1926. And by the way, Peg Entwistle is a tragic story right there. Look it up later, people, when you've listened to this podcast. Okay. It's kind of amazing. She got her first paid theatre gig with George Kukur, who reportedly wasn't impressed. They'd never work again in theatre or in film, coming close many years later when both were in consideration for Gone with the Wind, uh, which is one of those great, like, tantalising cinematic what-might-have-beens. Yeah. Imagine if Davis had got that role. Yeah. Um, in 1930, Davis screen-tested for Universal in that humiliating couch audition and made six films with them, the best probably being James Whale's Waterloo Bridge before her contract ended and was not renewed. She'd fare better with Warners, the studio she'd go on to spend the next 18 years with. It was George Arliss, the silent star, who'd effortlessly made the leap to the talkies and won an Oscar along the way who saved Davis's struggling career. He taught her acting before her move to the movies, and Davis would always credit him with giving her her first proper break when he selected her to act opposite him in The Man Who Played God. The film was a modest success, but more importantly, it reignited Davis's career. There were other successes. She appeared opposite Spencer Tracy, worked with Michael Curtis twice, uh, before she set her eyes on a role with another studio a role that no other actress in Hollywood seemed brave or maybe foolish enough to want to take on. Davis made a statement with of human bondage in 1934, 
The reviews were universally gushing. One contemporary reviewer for Life magazine opining that it was the finest performance ever committed to celluloid by an actress. Despite her rather ropey English accent <laughs> in the film, it made an indelible impression. It also contained many of the elements of the Davis story that reoccurred throughout her career. Feuding with co-stars, Leslie Howard sat reading a book while feeding lines for her close-ups, apparently, until he realised that she was starting to steal the film from underneath them. Uh, the film angered Jack Warner, her old rival, because he had very reluctantly lent out his star to RKO, who believed in the picture, but most importantly, they believed in Davis's ability. And the film would be considered the first terrible Oscar snub of the Academy's long snub history. Davis was not even nominated, while outraged voters scrawled her name on their ballots in protest. But it still felt like Davis had to wait for stardom to be bestowed upon her from the studio, who still wanted to put her in tame genre pictures. It was when she appeared in Dangerous a year later that she won an Oscar, for which she always maintained was a consolation for the debacle over of human bondage. Uh, during the period of 34 until 38, Davis had pendulous swings of quality, from challenging roles in Border Town and prestige pictures like Petrified Forest with Leslie Howard again and Humphrey Bogart, to substandard fluff like The Housewife and The Girl from 10th Avenue, uh, which you can probably sum up what they're about from yeah, titles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's a run from 1938 to 1942, where the volume of high quality is at its most impressive, starting with her second Oscar win in 1938 for Jezebel. Davis followed it up with the iconic work as Queen Elizabeth, aged up and shorn of beauty, and doing some heavy lifting opposite a curiously cast Errol Flynn. Davis was also proud of her work in the private lives of Elizabeth in Essex. It's got a lot of advice from Charles Lawton, yep. who said, you know, this is what you should be doing. You should be challenging yourself. And she said, she always credited him for saying, you know, that always stuck with her, hearing that from him. There was also more costume work in All This and Heaven Too. But this period is best remembered for four stone-cold classics in Dark Victory, The Lesser, Now Voyager, and Little Foxes. Seven great performances in four years. Uh, but also for Warners, they were all commercial successes. Uh, but it's around 1943 when things began to decline for Davis and continued for seven years. The films aren't bad, but none of them are remarkable. Rather than flexing her acting muscles, she flexes her star power, taking a secondary role in Watch on the Rhine because her name would allow a story she believed in to be made into a film. She also appeared in both Thank Your Lucky Stars and Hollywood Canteen, which were morale-boosting galas for the enlisted men of World War II. These were three admirable films, but there was no acting payoff on the flip side. The other films in the era were, were misfires that are largely forgotten, except for Davis's increasingly nasty personality on set. Davis herself confessed to being almost impossible to work with during this period, and things came to a head in 1949 when she constantly tried to flee the set of King Vidor's over-the-top melodrama Beyond the Forest. Subtlety isn't a card in King Vidor's hand, and with all the drama off-screen, the stuff on-screen isn't reined in. If Davis choose a little too much scenery, it's because the script sent out the dinner invitations and the director set the table. <laughs> so in 1950, New Decade meant New Davis. After a tumultuous and often rewarding, often frustrating 18 years under contract with Warner Brothers, Davis was allowed to go it alone. And the first breath of freedom she tasted was one of her sweetest and most enduring successes, All About Eve. Look, Duncan mentioned it before, but the coming of sound was a death knell for many performers. Famously, and perhaps untruthfully, 
the great star John Gilbert couldn't make the transition, an event that was pretty awesomely parodied in Singing in the Rain. Uh, but he was just the celebrated tip of the iceberg that included stars such as Emil Jennings, Lillian Gish, and, and more on her later. And by now, Crawford's own parents-in-law uh, and Hollywood royalty, Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford. Crawford herself had no difficulties. Her films from this period were huge successes, and not always critically. She's cute and untamed, glamorous in Montana Moon, and finally, serious and paid, a role she picked up from frequent rival Norma Shearer, who was pregnant at the time. But the real sign of great things to come for Crawford came in 1931, when she made Dance Fools Dance, with the reigning king of Hollywood, MGM's biggest name, Clark Gable. Crawford was, at this stage, blossoming into a huge star herself, big enough to be able to choose Gable as her co-star. It was the first of eight collaborations, all hits, most pretty well reviewed as well, and the beginning of a sensational affair that, and I love this quote, nearly burns Hollywood down. (laughs) That's uh, from Adela Rogers St. John. Crawford would say of the affair, I had what he wanted, and he had what I wanted. It wasn't just acting. We meant every damn kiss and embrace. God, we both had balls in those days. (laughs) That's amazing. That's great. Interestingly for me, she was MGM's second highest grossing star after Mary Dressler, an actress who had her second shot at success in her 50s, is largely forgotten today and would be dead by 1934. Yeah, it's amazing to me. It it was on one of the Gable films, the first of two films she made with the title Possessed, that Joan worked with Francho Tone, a handsome, distinguished-looking actor she'd worked with seven times and make her second husband. And a man I'm hesitant to talk more about because this story could derail this entire podcast if we started <laughs> talking about Franco Tone. Uh, so again, Peg Entwistle, Franco Tone, look them up after this book. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny, and I'll touch on this later, but we tend to remember things wrong, or at least incompletely when we assess people's careers. I read an Audrey Hepburn biography last year and was struck by the fact that while we all remember Roman Holiday and Breakfast at Tiffany's, iconic roles both, it was the nun story that was not just one of Hepburn's favourite films, but one of her most lucrative uh, yet it's not a film that people talk about now. Similarly, I think of the rest of the 30s for Joan Crawford being dominated by her charming performance in Grand Hotel, a film we'll talk about more later, and a wonderful, wonderfully bitchy turn, eviscerating poor Norma Shearer in The Woman in 1939. And yet, while I've seen and enjoyed both those films, and they were huge successes, the biggest hit of the decade was a film I'd never heard of before writing this podcast, uh, a film I can't even find a copy of, 1936's The Gorgeous Hussy. <laughs> But despite the hits, Crawford's reign was looking kind of shaky. After a couple of her films showed a loss, the president of the independent theatre owners wrote an open letter lumping Crawford in with a group of actors, including Catherine Hepburn, Norma Shearer, Garbo and Fred Astaire, he described as box office poison. Uh, she bounced back in the 40s with several well-received roles, but ultimately she was driven to leave MGM, the studio she'd been with for 17 years, and straight into arguably her greatest success. Duncan, I know you're going to talk a whole lot more about this later, but after 21 years in the film industry, Crawford received her first Oscar nomination and her only win for her performance in 1946's Mildred Pierce for a new studio, Warner Brothers. The film reignited her career. She followed up with a second Oscar nomination in 1947 for Humoresque and received her third and final nomination for the excellent thriller Sudden Fear opposite Jack Palance in 1952. I love Sudden Fear, uh, by the way. Just a, it's just a first-rate thriller. Uh, Crawford is so watchable, frequently in scenes with no dialogue at all, but she also gets a great line when her duplicitous husband asks what she's thinking, and she replies with kind of delicious wit, I was just wondering what I did to deserve you. <laughs> um, and it's really hard in that moment to know 
how she means that. Yeah. It's played just on that knife edge. You know, it's beautiful. But while we were successes, her career was hardly rocketing along. She'd only make three more films in the 40s after Humoresque. And she'd made some she was less than pleased with, including The Woman is Dangerous, which she described as her worst. <laughs> her roles in Slater period, for Mildred Pierce on, including the film I'll leave you to talk about, Duncan, the amazing, almost operatic camp oddity that is Johnny Guitar, uh, introduced a new Crawford. The Crawford who I think is most clearly imprinted on people's minds when they think of her. The hair gets shorter, the eyebrows more highlighted. The eyes themselves somehow more prominent. The lips emphasised. Her characters were often desperate victims, as Quentin Chris described them. Humiliated and heartbroken, uh, but they were tough as well, strong enough to fight back and win. And in the case of Johnny Guitar, domineering enough to completely emasculate Sterling Hayden's gunfighter. That mix of breakable yet unbroken, tender and severe, might be the Crawford I think of when I think of her. But there's a reason I quoted Quentin Crisp as well. During those years, John Crawford had also become somewhat of a gay icon. Well, that's right. I mean, like Crawford, either through accident or design, stumbled into some interesting films in her later years. Most memorably, as Simon just mentioned, in 1954's Johnny Guitar. Director Nicholas Ray, co-stars Sterling Hayden and Mercedes McCumbridge were all stubborn, smart, troubled firebrands who liked to drink and argue. So Joan Crawford fit right in. <laughs> the film was ravaged by stateside critics and ignored by audiences, but European critics embraced it. Francois Truffaut, once more responsible for legitimizing art that had formerly been dismissed. It's tremendous. It is tremendous, and it's one of the, as you said, it's kind of the camp classic yep. that she's probably best known for in a later period anyway. Her other films around this time were dramas with cruel characters and dark twists. Queen Bee, the story of Esther Costello, particularly being a bit strange. If you want to have a look into a plot, have a look into that one. Um, and especially Autumn Leaves. Autumn Leaves was directed by Robert Aldridge and remained a personal favourite of Crawford's. It had a title song by Nat King Cole, a strong performance from co-star Cliff Robertson as her love interest, and has some striking black and white cinematography, including a rip-off of the famous From Here to Eternity beach scene. Aldridge seems to take care with Crawford in Autumn Leaves, and in many ways it was the last quality film she ever did, aside from whatever happened to Baby Jane. And once more, Baby Jane appeared through Crawford's determination to find herself a project. But after its unexpected success, she descended into one schlock exploitation film after another. Straightjacket, berserk, and culminating in what can be seen as the nadir of her career and her final film, the ridiculous science fiction film, Trog. Although I've never seen it, all you need to know is that it's one of John Waters' favourite films. <laughs> so you can probably guess its qualities. Baby Jane gave Betty a big boost. Uh, sorry, more alliteration, couldn't resist. <laughs> a, a quickie thriller, the enjoyable dead ringer followed. And then Robert Aldrich got Betty and Joan back together for a great sweaty little southern gothic called Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. At least that was the plan. Uh, but the fighting with Betty Davis proved too much for Joan Crawford. And she became ill, or faked an illness, depending on who you believe. And was replaced by Olivia de Havilland after Aldrich spent four days begging her to become aboard the floundering film. But Betty remained busy the rest of her life. Between 64 and 88, she appeared in 28 films uh, for TV and theatre, which is an incredible output. Uh, they weren't all great, of course, and she couldn't resist fighting with her co-stars. She clashed with Karen Black, Black in the decent horror flick Burnt Offerings and supposedly loathed to her disappearance of Amy co-star Faye Dunaway. She called her a bitch in a 1987 interview. <laughs> uh, great stuff. And I can't help but wonder if that was at least in part because of Dunaway's part in Mummy Dearest. Because despite all their differences, Betty was appalled by the way Crawford was treating her daughter's supposedly tell-all book. 
And bizarrely, she had suffered the same fate when her own daughter, Beattie, wrote a poisonous book about her. Unlike Crawford, who wasn't alive when Mummy Dearest was written, Beattie, recovering from the double head of breast cancer in a series of strokes that left her partially paralysed, also had to deal with this very personal betrayal. And still she kept acting, appearing in the delightful The Wales of August in 87 beside silent star Lillian Gish, who was 93 at the time, um, the oldest actor, actress to ever star in a feature film. Vincent Price, a sprightly young man of 76, uh, co-starred, as did Anne Southern, who would be Oscar-nominated. Naturally, Betty feuded with Gish, <laughs> mocking her for being good in close-ups because the bitch invented them, uh, which is hilarious. There was one more role before the cancer returned for the last time. Too ill to return from Spain, where she was being honoured, she travelled to France, where Betty Davis passed away on October the 6th, 1989, at the age of 81. I detest cheap sentiment. And now we're on to our top five. Both these legends made so many films, it's tough just to boil down all their work, two kind of legendary actors, down to a top five. So we've kind of just done a top five places to start with both of them, with both Betty yep. Davis and Joan Crawford. They aren't ne- these aren't necessarily their best films, but they are really important landmark films that should be viewed if you're going to be serious about watching either of these actresses. Yeah. So Simon, uh, what's your first pick? Mick LaSalle once said that sometimes we study actors through the wrong end of the telescope, assessing careers on the basis of the things that come later. Uh, understanding James Dean and Marilyn Monroe only through their tragic early deaths, or judging John Wayne via his politics, that really only solidified in a post-war period, and forgetting the figure he was in his early career. Um, look, I've been guilty of doing this the same with Elizabeth Taylor, for instance, someone I still see as a diamond-encrusted older woman who married a blonde mulleted ne'er-do-well while in rehab, you know? <laughs> yeah. and, and not really looking at her early career and, and only discovering that later, but still through that lens, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and I mean, Taylor's a very good example of that because we're, you and I are basically the same age. And yep. so, and I remember that vividly in the 80s. She was bigger than life and it was nothing really to do with her work. Sure. It was more like she was a bit of a punchline to some people, you know. Yeah, she was, was like Joan Collins' character in Dynasty, but made real. You yeah, know, that's right. Yeah. yeah, Especially with Larry Fortensky. That was his name. Eh? Larry Fortensky, thank yeah. you. Yes. Yeah. And with the blonde mullet. He's uh, always reminded me of a wrestler because he was just, you know. He's like such Fortinsky. a joke. Yeah, yeah, it's a shocker. And look, I don't think there's any actor, I think, that falls foul of this tendency more than Joan Crawford. Most listeners probably see her as a hard-faced, shoulder-padded, possibly insane queen of camp with eyebrows drawn too harshly over crazy eyes and possibly actually being played by Faye Dunaway in your imagination, screeching about coat hangers. But that's no way to truly judge a career that lasted close to 50 years. Extraordinary. Starting as a showgirl in silence, kicking up her long legs aside as Duncan said, Roman Navarro and first husband Douglas Fairbanks Jr., before segueing smoothly into sound, reinventing herself after the war, and then again in the 1960s. So as much as I love her work in later films like Johnny Guitar and Sudden Fear, I want to talk about her performance in one of the biggest films of Hollywood's golden era, Grand Hotel from 1932. It's one of those films that grows on you even as you're watching it. Uh, Crawford plays a stenographer, which is kind of a freelancing secretary, with the awkward name of Flemchen, who meets cute with John Barrymore, who was 50 when this film came out. 24 years older than Crawford, and boy, do those years show. <laughs> yeah, they sure do. At first, she is completely disinterested in, this play, in his playboy advances, but then, on a dime, pretty much, she turns to completely smitten. And by the way, this is from the era where Craw- when Crawford walks off, Barrymore, who she'd met m- moments er- earlier, gives her a playful pat on the rear, and she doesn't mind at all. <laughs> uh, another Barrymore, Lionel, plays a put-upon bookkeeper, spending his meagre savings before he dies. Wallace Berry is a thuggish businessman, and one of the great stars of the era, Greta Garbo, is the Russian dancer 
who falls hard for John Barrymore. The film would win a solitary Oscar that year, and the only category it was nominated in, Best Film, an event that would never be repeated. I struggled with this bunch at first. Barrymore was too smooth, its courtship of Crawford too pat. Lionel felt set up as a punchline, the poor man wanting to play in the rich man's world. But lacking the class, and Garbo's performance just felt too big. But what starts out as depression-era wish fulfillment develops into something much deeper and ultimately much darker. Uh, it's also a film that shows a Hollywood in transition, I think. Garbo, the great star of her era, would have her career wound up a mere nine years and eight films later, which, you know, and for that time is a very slow rate of filmmaking. Mm. Um, though she would receive two further Oscar nominations. Well, Crawford was just on the rise. Garbo reportedly was only too aware of up-and-coming star Joan Crawford and had it in a contract for Grand Hotel that they never worked together. Mm. So they're never in a scene together. But Crawford also had to apparently come see it at 5pm after Garbo had wrapped for the day wow. so that they wouldn't have to cross paths. <laughs> um, and I think Crawford said they did cross paths and Garbo was lovely to him. He was like, oh, what a shame. We never got to work together. And, you know, Garbo got the immortal line, I want to be alone. But the 27-year-old Crawford's is the more naturalistic performance, uh, more endearing as well. She is, of course, gorgeous, big doe eyes, perfect skin, and way sexier than you would think would be allowed in 1932. Mm. And in fact, far too sexy for some distributors who took the scissors to parts of her performance. Mm. But she's also the more relatable. She's a working girl dreaming of making it big, or big enough not to have to endure the attentions of Wallace Berry's handsy industrialist. It's almost impossible to imagine the two women sharing the screen anyway. Uh, their styles, in this film at least, are just too far apart. Yeah, it's a good uh, point you make about the styles in Grand Hotel, but it all feels like they're in slightly different films. Yeah, well, I mean, apparently they're all in Germany, aren't they? Is it, is it, yeah. 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 And, and yet it's, it's confusing to me because no one apart from Wallace Berry has an accent. <laughs> <laughs> but then, um, you know, you've got the fact that Crawford's called Flemchen, yeah. which seems incongruous until you realise, oh, they're all supposed to be, you know, German. Yeah. Garbo's close-ups in that film are just so striking, aren't they, though? You oh, know, she's like, amazing looking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they just punch him for these close-ups you're talking about earlier before about Lily and Gish, you know? Like, yeah, yeah. Well, Garbo is just, just, as, just hogs the camera. Yes. You know, and, and the way it's shot is completely different. Uh, Crawford's great in this film. Mm. I really, I, I agree with you. I actually think she's the standout. Uh, yeah, me too. Which is saying something. I mean, she's up against two Barrymore's, a Garbo, you know. Wallace Berry. <laughs> Wallace Berry, yeah, yeah. you know. Uh, and, and she does, she's the most natural. I think, yeah, like you say, it kind of takes takes some kind of dark twists, and there's a great scene that she really is punches above her weight, um, and I think she's on fire at this period of her of, of film. Yeah, the, the, the film that she does, Possessed, nineteen thirty one's Possessed, she's great in that too. Yep. Really, really good. Grand Hotel's an interesting one to watch, and definitely the most accomplished cast she ever acted with. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's, it's the first of those superstar ensemble dramas. Um, so every time you sit down to watch New Year's Eve or He's just not that into you. Maybe you've got Grand Hotel to thank for it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> if you're going to delve into Joan Crawford's cinematic journey, at some point you have to watch her Oscar-winning turn in 1945's Mildred Pierce. The film opens with the murder of the husband of the title character and then flashes back to tell the story of Mildred Pierce, a solo mother who goes from waitress to successful restaurateur while dealing with a series of destructive relationships and an ungrateful, spoilt daughter. Casablanca director Michael Curtiz seemed to want every lead actress beside Crawford, Barbara Stanwyck, Olivia de Havilland, and Joan Fontaine, which is interesting because Crawford is one of the film's greatest assets. She has a strong presence as Mildred Pierce, and the black-and-white cinematography captures the noir atmosphere well, but the story's melodramatic sensibilities suffocate many of the performances. 
The daughter character especially suffers from being a one-dimensional brat, and the script is without any real attempt to explain her behaviour. She has all the character depth of a Cinderella stepsister. It has Zachary Taylor as the untrustworthy second husband of Mildred. He made a career out of playing these characters, and his look and temperament have more than a passing resemblance to David Strathane's approach to playing Pierce Patchett in L.A. Confidential. Uh, now, Betty Davis turned down the title role, and it's not difficult to see why. She had been down this road before, particularly seeing as it opens much the same way Betty Davis's The Letter five years earlier did, with a shady man being gunned down by a woman in the dead of night. Absolutely. And there isn't much to suggest Oscar-winning material, just from the script anyway. But this is where Crawford's acting ability comes to the fore. She is dedicated to the character, and despite some of the lurid subject matter, she imbues Mildred Pierce with a dignity that is so inexplicably missing in her child. Yeah, it's it's really good. It's, it's, a, it's a really great watch. I really like you say the film noir to it, but she, yeah. she does this thing at that point in her career where um, the suffering. Yeah. If, if you know what I mean, like I talked about it in Sudden Fear as well, but you really are drawn to her pain, and you know, yeah. and, and what she goes through in that film. Yeah, and I mean, she is the by far the most likable and relatable character in the whole yeah. film because everyone around her is so selfish and self-absorbed and and nefarious. She is the shining light, a shining beacon, and she thoroughly deserved the Oscar for this. Um, yeah. and she's really good, yeah. and uh, it's a good one to check out. Like I say, you, you'll see a lot of later films that are influenced by it. Duncan talked about it a bit before, but 1949's Beyond the Forest was something of a Betty Davis low point. Uh, she hated the film, and it caused her to split with Warners after an 18-year run with the studio. If it wasn't for the immortal line, what a dump, <laughs> it'd barely be remembered at all. But it did allow her to walk into one of the greatest roles of her career, role that perhaps defines her to this very day, Margot Channing in All About Eve. Margot's a theatre star in her 40s, trying to come to terms with the idea that she might be ageing out of the roles she's performing. When she meets starry-eyed Eve, a theatre hanger-on with big dreams of her own, Margot takes to Eve, who eventually becomes an indispensable assistant and eventually her scheming rival. As Pauline Kale observed, it's hard to imagine Anne Baxter's Eve as a real threat to Margot. And the film, wisely, I think, never shows her actually performing on stage. The gig would be up, I imagine, if they did. Mm. Uh, and while both actors would weirdly receive Best Actress nominations that year, it's Davis who commands the screen. As Roger Ebert smartly noted, Eve is a type. Margot is a very particular creation. She's vulnerable, threatened, and as always, wonderfully temperamental. She was also a wiser, more compassionate character, and she gets the best, wittiest lines. Throwing a party that she plans to hijack and destroy, she gets to warn, fasten your seatbelts, it's going to be a bumpy night. <laughs> it sure is. For Betty Davis, this was the film that, in her own words, saved her career. It also gave her another husband, uh, Gary Merrill. Years later, Davis would admit that, really, they'd fallen in love with each other's characters. And why wouldn't they? Yeah, uh, a fantastic film. All about Eve. I think um, out of all the films we're going to be talking about, this is the Stone Cold classic out of, yeah. out of, out of everything. I think. Yeah. And um, wonderful. And, yeah. and so smart, witty. Um, and and Davis never really kind of forgave Baxter for basically, as she considered, splitting the vote in the Oscars. Yeah, that's right. Because uh, Baxter could have gone for Best Supporting Actress. Yeah. And apparently lobbied hard to be bumped up to yeah, actress, but the best supporting, I can't remember who all the nominations were, but it was a much weaker field. Yeah. You know, and it feels like one of the ones she could have probably taken out. Yeah. As it, as it turns out, of course, neither of those women won. Mm. Um, yeah, it's weird, weird too, because not only was it uh, two best actresses, but uh, two best supporting actresses from this film were nominated. Mm. Um, Celeste Holm and Thelma Ritter. 
Uh, Thelma Ritter would receive a further five nominations, three more in consecutive years. <laughs> Never won. Yeah. Which is uh, horrendous. Um, George Sanders, the perennial heel, uh, did win for Best Supporting Actor, which is great to see because I All love right. him. Yeah. Um, and he is really good in this role too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, As, uh, yeah he's great. Um, this was the same year uh, uh, as Gloria Swanson and her nomination for um, Sunset Boulevard. Right. Which is really interesting because they're both two takes on ageing, if, if, if you know what I mean, ageing uh, movie on theatre royalty. That's right. Yeah, so it's interesting those two films happened in the same year. Yeah, and Davis touches on this quite a lot in, in her films, especially around this period. Yeah. The star is, is very much yeah. similar, similar yeah. kind of material. I spoke about this earlier, which is 1938's Jezebel. It's a triumph for Davis and a good example of Davis being paired with the right co-star. Often she was paired with kind of wooden leading actors, especially compared to her abilities. But here, her scenes with Henry Fonda show the star quality of both of the actors. Their chemistry fires up the screen and Davis is cast to type as a fast-talking, mischievous and headstrong Southern Belle playing havoc with her suitors' emotions. It's a delightful performance from Betty. Full of fun contradictions, at times wicked, petulant, brave, and vulnerable. Uh, the film is among William Wyler's finest. It's never lagging in pace, especially by modern standards. It showcases developed characters, including memorable support players, delivering a sense of time and place with impressive set and costume design captured in sumptuous black and white cinematography. But all of this, including even Henry Fonda, never outshines Davis. Davis delivers a performance that is beyond what most of the contemporaries were capable of. But the script is kind to Davis, where she is vicious in of human bondage, lovelorn in the petrified forest, dignified in dark victory. In Jezebel, she is all three and so much more, believable and very commanding. And I'd just like to kind of segue off because there exists this subgenre which is called women's films, which were in fashion for approximately about 50 years uh, until probably about the 60s, which coincided with both Davis and, and Crawford's career stalling, interestingly. Mm. Um, now, these were pre-women's liberation term given to films that are about female concerns of the time, domesticity, loyalty to a man, but most importantly of all, self-sacrifice. Um, but the identifying thing is that they're written not by women but by men. Yeah. And Jezebel covers these in almost dictionary definition. And although Davis manages to sweetly subvert many of these characteristics, she comes to the final one in, a, in what proved to be a controversial manner, that self-sacrifice. A lot of reviews at the time said this shouldn't have happened to her character. Her character shouldn't have gone down this road. But I actually really like it in the yep. film. I think this is my favorite performance of Betty Davis's, all her, um, of all her sides. I think they're all shown in this film in one go, and I just love it. I think it holds up really well, and the stuff with Henry Fonda is just fantastic, especially in the opening um, half of the film. Uh, it's great, and um, yeah, I think anyone who watches Gone with the Wind should check out Jezebel. Yes, uh, it's, it's a, a lot leaner film, but it's also a good example of a Southern Belle played in a way that you kind of sympathise with her a lot more than you do Vivian Lee in Gone with the Wind. I think. Yeah, I've said before I don't like Gone with the Wind a like, hell of a lot. Um, yeah. I love. Jezebel. Yeah. And I love Betty Davis and her. her uh, like I said, she is beautiful, uh, yeah. which is something. And I don't want to make a big thing of that, but that's something a lot of people say she is not. Yeah. But she is. And she has a great introduction riding in on this, like, uh, feisty, bolting um, horse, jumping off and using her riding crop to flick up her dress so she can carry it. Yeah. And just effortlessly. Um, but you're right. I love the way there are so many sides to her character. And mm. The character is so, 
so complicated. Yeah. And the other thing that is absolutely true is how great it is to have a someone of the strength of Henry Fonda in this role because yeah. as much as I love of human bondage, her accent aside, yeah. um, Leslie Howard is just uh, steamrolled in yeah. that film by by um, Davis. Yeah. She needs someone strong and she gets someone strong in this film. Yeah. And that makes a, a massive difference as well. Both of the actresses, but particularly Davis, often, you know, the, the, the cast across from some like kind of good actors, but not really strong personalities. You know, they're never across from like Jimmy Stewart or Henry Fonda or yeah. Gregory Peck or, you know what I mean? Like any of these guys who you just, or, or Cary Grant or yeah. any of those guys no, that's right, that, that's that right. could have been. And maybe they were just like, well, I don't really want to be working with well, Betty Davis. Well, she with George <laughs> Brent, I think, about eight times. Yeah. And um, he's fine. Like, I, don't, yeah. I, I like him as an actor. But it, it's clear that there's a, a mismatch in power there. Yeah. And, yeah, and maybe that's why that worked as well as it did. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, a good example is Dark Victory, where um, I'm not sure who she's cast across from there and there, but is that George Brent? In yeah, it's Brent. That, yeah. yeah. And that's just, I'm just like, why didn't you cast someone different in that? Yeah, totally. Like that's, someone stronger. Yeah. Because um, Davis, again, just steamrolling over top of it, just steals all of those. Whereas with Jezebel, I think it's cast so beautifully with Henry Fonda that you really want them as a couple to kind of get together, yeah. you know? And, and I think Jezebel holds up. I think if you go back and watch a few of these films, you know, they don't quite hold up as well. Of Human Bondage is one that maybe, you know, yeah, it's a bit rough. work as well. And Dark Victory, again, is another one that's just like, well, it's a bit movie of the week now. At the time, it was probably quite groundbreaking, but now it's not quite, whereas Jezebel just is, uh, it really yeah, pops. Yeah, really yeah, it. no, it totally does. That build up to the dance, yeah, where she wears the red dress is extraordinary. Yeah, the tension in that, and then of course the way they play it out as well. Yeah, is kind of gutting. Yeah, you know, and and, and I love when she's she's uh, putting on this huge spread for him to come back. And, oh, and, and yeah, <laughs> and, and 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 the way she looks when you know she realizes the situation that's occurred. I don't want to give anything away. No. Uh, the way she that the emotions she goes through, you can see it, you can read it, and you just feel for her. Yeah. I love the fact that she's, uh, again, I don't want to spoil too much, but I, she's building towards this great moment for her character. Yeah. And the movie's playing along with it as well. You yeah. can feel the music of hope and optimism and just, yeah. and yet as an audience, we know yeah. where it's going. Yeah. And, and this is why I say not only is this a triumph for Betty Davis, but I really think this is one of the best William Wyler films I've seen. Yep. And, uh, and that's not, you know, that's not faint praise. He's made some great films, but yep. this is right up there for me. Yep. Absolutely. Well, that just leaves us with one more film, I think, to talk about, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, what could that be, I wonder? <laughs> it will obviously be Whatever Happened to Baby Jane from 1962. Child star Baby Jane Hudson, Betty Davis, and her wheelchair-bound sister, faded star Blanche Hudson, Joan Crawford, live out their days in a crumbling mansion with the ever more unstable Baby Jane looking after her housebound sister. As Jane's mental state slowly erodes, she finds it ever crueler ways to torment her sister. Uh, look, Davis, dressed up like a doll with a kabuki face. Uh, Makeup Davis applied herself because she envisaged Jane as someone who never washed her face. <laughs> it's amazing. Just layered more makeup on top, pancaking it on. Uh, Baby Jane is one of the great cinematic creations, a sometimes grotesque, pitiable creature given to flights of fancy, great cruelty and childlike outbursts. It's the more active, more spectacular of the two roles. And Davis holds nothing back, shedding all vestiges of vanity and overacting her heart out. Which is, fortunately, exactly what the role required. Yeah. Yeah, look, it's unusual that an Oscar-nominated film can be a seriously B-grade cult movie. But that's exactly what Baby Jane is. Sure. Yeah. And as you say, I mean, Davis steals the film in one of her most iconic roles. Crawford 
plays on her crafted veneer of dignity and poise to reveal a deeply damaged person. Mm. The film's final revelation of a cruel twist for both baby Jane and the audience as we reassess our feelings to the two lead characters. Yeah. Jane's childlike question, so you mean we could have been friends all this time? Uh, uh, I mean, it's, it's a reminder of what secrets and lies can do to a family. Yeah. And uh, the film is a camp classic, and it's, it's entertaining with Davis having a ball as baby Jane, as you say, creating her own iconic look and not caring what she looks like a frightful mess. Yeah. Because Davis attempted and succeeding in stealing the film from Crawford through sheer force of performance. Yeah. Uh, the unmistakable Victor Buono adds another layer of desperation to events. He's great. I always mm. remember him as uh, King Tut from Batman um, yeah. 1966. Yeah. And, <laughs> and there's the only thing I'd ever seen him in. And then yeah. I remember seeing, you know, this probably about 10 years ago. Yeah. It's King Tut. King and Tut. He, he's amazing. Oh, man. As Edwin, he has both like the size of Sydney Green Street and the sleaziness of Peter Laurie. Yeah. He's like these two Bogart villains and one. I love him. That's a great comparison. <laughs> uh, he, he matches perfectly with Davis. Baby Jane works on a meta level that both actresses had been moving toward in the decade before. Mm. Davis in particular. Uh, 1952's The Star, we were talking about, as a fading actress refusing to accept her best years of past. Whereas Crawford had been made a run of films about lonely old women unlucky in love. Yeah. Um, so Baby Jane is a film that is rightly considered both of the actresses' kind of last great film, I think. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, obviously this is Davis's film, which would be nominated and deserve to be so. Joan Crawford works on a much lower register, and how could she not? Yeah. Um, and her performance is often quietly ignored, I think, alongside the bombast of Betty Davis's work in this. Yeah. But I always felt that Joan wisely underplayed the role. Uh, the suffering and self-sacrifice was something she'd mastered, as you say, in films like Mildred Pierce. Yeah. And it serves her well as a desperate figure in the eye of a storm of madness that swirls around her. And the film was a huge hit, recouping its budget and providing a windfall for the actresses. We actually took uh, small fees but percentage profit points in the film, yeah. so we're actually able to do pretty well. Although I've heard some stories that maybe some bit of creative accountancy might have robbed them of their, yeah. you know, what they deserved. That's right. I wouldn't be surprised, actually. Yeah. Sorry, but I don't think I know you. I believe it's my husband you know, because you and my husband aren't going on seeing each other. You're very confident, aren't you? Yes, because I know Stephen couldn't love a girl like you. Well, if he couldn't, he's an awfully good actor. I think here is maybe a good point to discuss the legendary feud and the TV series that has just been made about it, Yeah, um, which is called Feud. Because it's interesting that the story has been such a critical and commercial success. As you said, both actresses have become gay icons. Mm. Um, Davis for a kind of bitchy, playful persona. Crawford for his style and kind of campness, yeah. particularly in extravaganzas like Mummy Dearest, which will come out later, which is kind of legendarily over the top, yeah. uh, a film that Faye Dunaway blames for ruining her career. Uh, she plays Crawford with all the subtlety of George C. Scott and Dr. Strangelove, yeah. uh, just overblown and on the edge of mania in nearly every scene while her children cower. Uh, interestingly, in Feud, Jessica Lang is also happy to visit the site of Crawford, but she doesn't take up permanent residence there the way that Dunaway does. Mm. You know, and many believe the beginning of the conflict was actually Davis having an affair with her with her co-star, as you said, uh, Francois Tone. Yeah. Uh, you know, on the set of her Oscar-winning film Dangerous. And the reason this affair struck a chord is because Tone was engaged to another actress, Miss Joan Crawford. Viewed um, the TV series, uh, which I have seen, and Simon, you have not watched yet? I have not. It's a TV series. Oh, sorry, Marty. Because you've got too many Joe, Joan Crawford and Betty Davis films to watch. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a good series. Uh, it's really well acted. It's got uh, Susan Sarandon as Betty Davis, and she looks like her. She's kind of got that the voice and yeah. the eyes and, and a look. What's interesting is it's uh, Sarandon and Lang, particularly Sarandon, I think she's 70 years old, so she's actually significantly older than yeah. um, Davis was at the time. Uh, and I think that that's kind of cool as well. 
and Lang does this Crawford, you, you sense she's playing a role of playing a role. You know what I mean? Yeah, so, yeah, which is so often something that's said of Crawford. That's right. It's, it's it's Jessica Lang playing Joan Crawford, playing Joan Crawford, and I really like that. So, I mean, if you haven't seen it, then check it out because it's great. It touches on uh, a lot of the things from Baby Jane onwards. Unfortunately, there's great. There's you know, it doesn't really reflect on too much before that. And there's a there's a really interesting part towards the end of it where people are coming up trying to get you know autographs of uh, Joan Crawford. Can you sign this? And she's like, well, why don't you have a photo of Mildred Pierce? Or why don't you have a photo of Grand Hotel? No, you've got to have whatever happened to Baby Jane. And I kind of think that about the series where I'm like, well, why are you just focusing on Baby Jane? Yeah. What about all these great things beforehand? But, you know, obviously it's not as yeah. interesting. I mean, the only other thing about the, uh, the feud, just to touch on it, not the series, but just yeah. the feud in general, in our popular imagination, mm. is it's hard to know how much of it is true and how, how much of it is, you know, just urban myth to some extent, but also yeah. marketing. I was reading this, it was a really int- well-written article, and I thought, uh, in Bright Lights Film Journal mm-hmm. about the onset uh, events on what happened to Baby Jane, but I doubt some of them, to be honest. Like mm. They were talking about uh, Betty Davis kicking Joan Crawford, which is one of the things they talk about, and yeah. um, I don't think, I don't know if that ever happened, to be fair. Yeah. You know, if you watch the film, it, it doesn't look, it wasn't shot in a way that that would be what happened. Yeah. So I doubt it ever did. And and so and you read a lot of stories yeah. that, that have the air of um, either selling a film about a feud yeah. or just being make-believe. I'm not saying there wasn't a difference between the two actresses. There clearly was. Yeah. But there was an element of respect, too, I think, that you, you'll often come across. Yeah, I think so. I think there's a, um, in, in the TV series, hints at that as well. It's what was expected and it's what was needed, you know? And there was the idea that you would just be consumed by this machine unless you stood your ground. Yeah. yeah? And the other thing is that they seem to feud with everyone. Like, it, was, it wasn't just them. It's that they were the kind of two survivors. A lot of people seem to drop out, like you were saying. You know, they had issues yeah. with Hepburn. They had issues with uh, Norma Shearer. Yeah. They had issues with everyone, they seemed yeah. to, except for Garbo. Garbo seemed to be the only one that both of them said, you know, she was delightful, basically. They they looked up to her. Yeah, they both admired her immensely. And, um, I mean, I don't think you get careers that last 50 years without having to fight some fights. Both of them were the first of older actresses actually fighting. Yep. You know what I mean? Like, that didn't exist. Yeah. You were just dispensed with, yep. weren't you? So, they, you know, there weren't really many other actresses trying to fight and do quality and be in control of their... Um, oh, careers at abs- that point. Look, absolutely. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Okay, so that's our, our top five places to start. But um, where do you think you should go from there, Duncan? I mean, what are your recommendations? Here's a film I suggest starting with. For Betty Davis, Jezebel, of Human Bondage, uh, The Letter. I love The Letter. And I, all about Eve. Yeah, I, I really love The Letter. I really um denied about making it the film to, to yeah. talk about here. I just think that opening is so strong in particular. Yeah. You know, when she comes out, and I'm not spoiling anything because honestly, it just happens in the opening minute, and she shoots this guy like yeah. six times. And if that gun had had 20 bullets, she would have shot him 20 times. Yeah. And it's just so dramatic and so um, it's, it's captivating. So it is, it is. And the way that the, the camera tracks in as she's coming down the front porch stairs. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's wonderful. It's great. It's such a striking opening yeah. at the beginning of it. Uh, she's excellent in, in that. Yeah. And for Crawford, um, I'd say uh, obviously Mildred Pierce, but also um, Possessed, 1931's Possessed that she did with Clark Gable. Yeah. She's really good in that. And that's really interesting film. It's got these almost hints of um, kind of social realist filmmaking in it. 
So a lot of the, some of the kind of location stuff they do at factories, you know, around train tracks. She's from this hick town, basically, and this train comes through and she's looking at longingly and, and mm. a train goes past and you're standing there and this train just goes full frame past and all the windows go past and you see people dining and dancing and everything else. And it's just, it's, it's wonderful. It's got some really interesting uh, cinematography in it, but she is great and she's up against Clark Gable mm. um, and it's a really good journey, her character. The story is not that amazing, but the beginning is excellent and Crawford's a real standout. It's one of her best performances for me. Um, and Autumn Leaves, if you can find it, um, that's on you on YouTube. So the whole film's on YouTube. Oh, good. Uh, and pretty good quality too. Right. Uh, and that's just an interesting one to watch, especially if you've if you've watched um, a bit of Crawford stuff, particularly if you've watched um, The Feud, because mm. this, I think, is literally her final film before whatever happened to Baby Jane. Yeah. So Robert Aldrich does it, and um, it's, it's it's got a bit of care taken with it. It's worth watching just to see Joe Crawford um, scream at Vera Miles, calling her a slut. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> which is excellent. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting film. And in 1927's The Unknown, um, the silent film, yeah. um, especially if you're familiar with any of Todd Browning's work, particularly The Freaks, I think yeah. you'll enjoy this. And of course, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Yeah, yeah. Uh, look, I, I, I would add to, uh, to Crawford, I think The Women's a really interesting film from 1939. I, I, I find parts of it hard to take, to be honest, mm -hmm. because it's a film that only stars women. Mm -hmm. uh, every, every performer, right down to the fact that even the animals are women. <laughs> <laughs> even like the pets and the horses are women. That's how, how and yet, for, for some reason, because of that, it, it, it seems even less feminist because their preoccupations are all about unseen men who seem to drive what's happening on screen. Right. Uh, and I think one of the weaknesses of the film is the lead is Norma Shearer. Uh, and she's not strong and her character's not strong. Right. But um, if, you, if, if you like... Uh, Crawford, you will love her real bitchy turn as the woman who steals Shira's husband away from her. <laughs> she would uh, love that. Yeah, oh, she's fantastic in this. Um, she's so dominant and so domineering. And mm. Rosalind Russell is also extremely funny. So I think that's not a, that's a pretty good film to, to pick up on. 1939, which is, of course, as I've said, just such a great year in cinema anyway. Yeah. Um, I also really loved her in Sudden Fear. I spoke about that a, mm -hmm. quite a bit. And I did mean to mention with Betty Davis, she... Post uh, Baby Jane, uh, she did a couple of really interesting films. You know, kind of um, leapfrogging on the success of that. She did uh, Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, mm -hmm. which is also just this beautiful Southern Gothic treat um, mm. in, in a similar vein. And uh, Dead Ringer, which I, I've spoken about in a previous podcast, really enjoyed. Yeah, and uh, she plays uh, twin sisters in there. It's the second time she played twin sisters. Yeah, 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 that's, yeah. Right, that's right. So there's an earlier one, gosh, what was that one called? It was in 1946. Uh, and she she did um, she did a film I can't remember the title of it. No, nor can I. But interestingly, that was the last film she did from forty six to fifty until All About Eve that actually made any money. She lost money for four years for Warner's. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's the second time she had uh, she she played um, this Twin Sisters. Twin Sisters. Yeah, it's yeah. a fun film. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And and um, now Voyager as well. I think is um, right. Maybe the height of that whole woman's picture. Yeah. Idea. I think at the time and um, it, it it's dated quite quite a bit. Mm -hmm. But I still really enjoyed her in it a lot. And so now we touch on their legacy. Yeah, and look, for me, so much of what you'll hear about Davis and Crawford will be about their differences, mm -hmm. uh, about ha the, their fights, about how Crawford yearned for stardom and became a star from a combination of kind of endless hard work, glamour, and almost pure force of will. Mm -hmm. While Davis found success through aggressive and undeniably strong performances, you'll hear about Crawford's stunning looks, the perfect cheekbones, her striking figure, 
versus Davis, a woman who no one seemed to see as desirable. Mm. Uh, but I think it's what Davis and Crawford, for me, had in common that might be more interesting. These were movie stars, above the title movie stars. Davis considered being a character actor somehow akin to being a has-been in some ways. She happily turned down later-age roles as both Burt Lancaster's mother in The Unforgiven and Paul Newman's mother in Cool Hand Luke. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's as if that was somehow beneath her just playing the mother role. Yeah. Um, she may have once said that Crawford became a movie star while she became a great actress. Mm. Uh, but I believe Davis was always aware of her own position and power as a star. Uh, and then, as I said before, there's their looks, their sex appeal. Because one thing that's always been true in Hollywood, now as it was then, uh, is that actresses' career wax and wane with their youth and perceived desirability. It's probably ignored by highlighting the exceptions sometimes, you know, the Judy Dentures and the Helen Mirrens, and of course the Crawfords and the Davises. But their experience, experiences are the exceptions, you know. I've, I've got this book of cult movie stars I sometimes read, and it's sobering and saddening to flick through and read the same words to describe actresses' careers over and over again as rolls right up, her career stalled, or the simple, she stopped making movies. Mm. As if that's all we need to understand about what happens to actresses at a certain age. Yeah. You know? And, and you see it in, in Davis and Crawford's careers as well. But also you see them overcome it by rebuilding careers on All About Eve and Mildred Pierce, and then rebuilding them again with Baby Jane. Which is extraordinary when you think about it, to have that, those lulls, but to keep fighting back. Mm. And I think for me... You know, and inventing, even in, in doing so, a, a subgenre given the horrendously unflattering term hagsploitation mm. or psychobitty, as I've heard it called, um, which opened the doors for other actresses like Shelley Winters and Olivia de Havilland. And I doubt they saw themselves as changing things for the better for other actresses. Mm. I'm sure they were just two forces of nature, clawing and fighting for their own careers. And I think that absolute strength, you know, alongside mm. the talent, is what their legacy is, you know, they never give in. There's a trailblazing quality to Davis, particularly, I think. Yes. She's incapable of being anonymous or invisible. Uh, she owns a screen in a way that Crawford simply cannot. And that's no slight on Crawford. That's more to do with just the uncomfortable quality of being mm. Davis. Davis owned a justified arrogance, like an unshakable self-belief. And this kind of confidence radiates off the screen. In the closing minutes of the letter, as we were saying, Davis is just as powerful in a solo, silent performance as she is in delivering lines of dialogue with co-stars. Davis has self-awareness and kind of has a sense of fun about her. She complained that Joan Crawford never stopped being Joan Crawford. Mm. As, as if kind of Crawford showing her true humanity was a weakness. And Davis loved the warts and all approach, stripping back her looks, both in her youth and, and in later years in Baby Jane. Like even as she was advancing in years, she was still happy to like, oh, let's just go all out. Because she was certain of her abilities. So in some ways, Crawford's achievements are almost more impressive. Yeah, because looking back at her work, she is a good actress, but she is a great star. Uh, and and like I say, Davis has classics like Off Human Bondage, Dark Victory, Jezebel, Now Voyager, All About Eve. And even if other films went up to those standards, Davis's performances always were, or most mm. of the time they were. Yeah. Uh, whereas Crawford's filmography isn't littered with as many Stone Cold classics as that, with only really kind of Grand Hotel and Mildred Pierce sticking out as enduring, iconic films. Mm. But Crawford was a warrior, and, and one said of her, no one made Joan Crawford a star. Joan Crawford made Joan Crawford a star, just kind of through sheer force yeah. of, of will. Both actresses went, as you said, through peaks and valleys, but Crawford's continually reestablished herself as a star every decade. So she fought to get small parts. Then she became a star of the silent screen when talkies, as we were saying, were just derailing huge stars. You know, Crawford persevered, and then she became box office dynamite, 
at the advent of the sound era in the late 20s and early 30s, only, to be, only as you say, to be cruelly labelled box office poison. Mm. Then she's got to start all over again. And despite this, Crawford once more fought for the roles that others like Davis would just discard until she won her Oscar. And then she was cast away again until she went out and actively sought strong scripts. This, she discovered, you know, the book of Baby Jane. Yeah. And even casting her arch nemesis in the showy title role. Yeah. I mean, that says something. Because if she was completely vain and, and, and hateful towards um, Betty Davis, she would never have done that, you know, yeah. even if it was going to benefit her. I still don't think she would have. So it seems cruel that this would basically be the last thing of significance that Crawford would do. Both her and Davis, as you were saying, fought to be relevant in a time that was even harsher to aging women than the current industry is. And as I say, I can't think of another actress who was doing things at that point in the 60s uh, in 62, who were from this true golden age yeah. of uh, Hollywood cinema and just kept fighting yeah, kept fighting until the day they died. And I, I think that's quite amazing. I, I don't know if there's any actress around at the moment of the quality of someone like Davis particularly. Yeah, I don't you know, think so. And, and that's saying a lot. She is, Davis particularly, is one of the true um, iconic stars. But I also think us doing this podcast and us researching this I have such a new appreciation for Joan Crawford. Yeah. And, 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 and I give her a lot more credit as an actress and as, as a businesswoman, but also, uh, and as a warrior, but also just um, as a chameleon, she changes a lot. She, visually she changes and her performances grow and you can see her as an actress move through these times and, yeah. uh, and, and ever changing. So she's got quite a chameleonic presence, more than I gave her credit for. Yeah, I think uh, that thing Davis says about uh, Crawford having to be Crawford or becoming Crawford, I think that's essential to how she became what she was. You yeah. Know? She had to create herself. Yeah. Because Davis didn't have to do that, I think, in a no. way. And I think that's, as you say, almost more admirable because the strength and force of will, as you say, to become the star that she became must have been tremendous. Spoiler alert. And so that's it for this month. We're there. Yeah, that's quite an epic, man. There was a lot of viewing, a lot of great viewing. Oh, there's a lot of great viewing. It's, uh, it's really exciting to go back and discover these films that you didn't necessarily know about. For me, The Unknown and, and, and Possessed by Crawford uh, and The Letter from Betty Davis. So there's just so many great films there and there's so many to check out. The best thing, I think, is that people will go back and rediscover these films now. Yeah. It'll be a curiosity. Yeah, yeah, I really hope so. I'd love to think of people listening to this and then going out and getting a copy of Jezebel, Yeah, for instance. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah and so look, the song we're going out to is... Uh, it's Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, the song, as performed by Betty Davis, she's on a talk show or something, I love the gameness of her, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, she must know this is looking silly, but she still goes for it. Wonderful. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah fantastic. So uh, you can imagine people just going, what is this? What is Betty yeah. Davis doing? But, uh, yeah, fantastic. So thanks to everyone for listening. Go out, um, find as much Betty Davis and Joan Crawford films as you can. Yeah, that's right. And um, uh, enjoy it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next month. Yes. Whatever happened to baby Jane? She could dance. She could sing. Make the biggest theatre ring. Jane could do most anything. Whatever happened to baby Jane?
all this time we could have been friends.